Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis, a podcast of the New Books Network. My name is Sebastian Truhl, your host, and today's episode is a conversation with Professor Brad Carr about his book How to Flourish as a Psychotherapist, published by Phoenix in 2019. The interview was conducted in front of an online live audience as part of a new series of events hosted by The Free Association, a group of psychoanalysts based in the beautiful city of Lisbon, Portugal, creating innovative opportunities of continuous learning in the field of psychodynamic psychotherapy and psychoanalysis. This conversation is part of a new format titled Forward, in which I interview exciting psychoanalytic scholars about their work. After the interview, and this is special about Forward, there's an extended discussion with the audience, which you will not hear in this recording. Check out the website of the Free Association for future events at www.freeassociation.pt. But now let me introduce Professor Brad Carr. He has worked in the mental health profession since 1976. He's senior fellow at the Tavistock Institute of Medical Psychology in London and also visiting professor of psychoanalysis and mental health in the Regents School of Psychotherapy and Psychology at Regents University London. Along serving trustee of both Freud Museum London and of Freud Museum Publications, he also holds posts as Senior Clinical Research Fellow in Psychotherapy and Mental Health at the Center for Child Mental Health, as Consultant in Psychology to the Bowlby Center, and as Consultant Psychotherapist at the Barland Consultancy. In addition to his clinical work, Brad has also trained as a historian and has specialized in the history of psychiatry and psychoanalysis. He's authored 15 books on a range of topics. To pick out one focus of his wide-ranging interests, he has written extensively about severe psychopathology in such books as Bombs in the Consulting Room, Surviving Psychological Shrapnel, about which I interviewed him last year on new books in psychoanalysis. In addition to his clinical and historical teaching and research, Brett has maintained a long-standing public interest in the promotion of mental health knowledge to members of the general public. He served for many years as resident psychotherapist for BBC Radio 2 and has appeared on numerous radio and television programs. He currently works with patients, both individuals and couples, in long-term psychotherapy and psychoanalysis in his independent practice in central London. But now, without further ado, here's the interview. Brett, it's, it's a pleasure to have you, and I'm very honored to have you on board with us today. Well, thank you very, very much indeed, Sebastian. I, I am honored as well to be in conversation with you. I must say that the interview that you facilitated uh, with me on new books in psychoanalysis last year was uh, I, I think one of the most intellectually rigorous and and stimulating interviews. So uh, I, I enjoyed it uh, very tremendously, and and I'd like to say uh, 
to the founders of, of Free Association, thank you so much for creating this amazingly creative organization. I deeply wish that when I had started in this field as a, a young student, there was something like this. But, but back then, students were told to shut up and be quiet and go to lectures and certainly not to own your authority in any way. So the fact that, that we now have this organization, Free Association, which is a, a free independent association, I think that's very, very exciting indeed. And, and, and thank you to all the participants for, for joining. I, I can't think of a more important moment in our lifetimes when we need good people joining the psychological professions, whether it's psychiatry, psychoanalysis, psychotherapy, psychology. We have so many different names and so many different titles, but my goodness, the world is, is globally traumatized at, at the moment. And we, we really, really need a good team of people because I think that with this uh, horrific coronavirus pandemic, we're only just beginning to see the emotional fallout. And, and I think that young children growing up today uh, will be coming to psychoanalytical offices in 20 years time, 30 years time, uh, desperately seeking help because they may be scared of the human body. So we really need good people and as many good people in the field as possible. Thank you very much, Brett. And I would just like to start by a point that you already sort of raised right now when you were talking about owning your authority because i have a feeling that that might have been a big motivation in writing this book to actually encourage not just but probably mostly young people to actually find their own voice could you say a bit more about your motivation in in writing that book and if my if my idea this is actually a motivation behind it, if there's something to it. Yes, I, I, I wrote the book for, for a number of, of reasons. And many of you will be familiar with the English, uh, British publishing company called Karnak Books. And I, I have a long relationship with Karnak Books. It's really our, our leading psychological publisher. But it was sold to a different publishing house in 2017. And one of the colleagues who worked there at Karnak Books, a lovely woman by the name of Kate Pierce, decided that with the sale of Karnak Books, she would establish her own independent publishing house called Phoenix Publishing House. And when she told me this, I, I asked her, well, would you like me to write a book for you so you can help get your new venture started? And I, I'd known Kate for about 20 years. She had been the project manager on a number of my previous books, and she's just the kindest woman you'll, you'll ever meet. And I thought, well, let's not write one of those old fashioned books on, you know, post-Kleinian, neo-Winnicottian, pre-Bionic uh, approaches to counter-transference or something like that, that only three people would read. Let, let's write a book for young people entering the profession. So that really was the, the initial motivation to, to give Kate Pierce a gift. And, and to, to really put some, some ideas into words about what it's like being in this profession and what are some of the challenges and some of the inhibitions that prevent a lot of our colleagues 
from really having full and rich and joyful and engaging professional lives. Because although I can say to you, Sebastian, that you know, I, I, I know literally thousands and thousands of mental health professionals, and I would say that you know, 99.99% of them are good, intelligent, compassionate, honest people, but not all of them are as fully creative as they can be. And I have a lot of colleagues who I would say end their lives and end their careers in a state of real depression and dissatisfaction, feeling that they never really achieved what they wanted to achieve. They showed up at the office every day, they treated their patients, but I don't think they ever managed to share their lifetime of wisdom. So as when I've been a teacher, I've always tried to encourage my students to start writing, start doing creative projects long before they finish their studies, long before they qualify, so that they can develop a voice and develop a sense of permission to go out and change the world. So that really is the, the atmosphere behind the writing of this book on flourishing. Right. And, and in the book, you take us through the life cycle, so to say, of a psychotherapist. You start out by describing what, how, how someone might start entering the profession, start to get serious about reading the literature, start uh, to, to find a training. And then you take us through, you know, your ideas about flourishing, about thriving in the consulting room, but also beyond that. And there's even a big part of how to finish up, how to end your practice. So it's really like the whole life cycle of the therapist, of the analyst. And at every stop, you sort of describe what someone could do, what someone could endeavor to get the most out of the profession. So, and I was wondering, what was the motivation in that specific perspective, you know, to actually not just, not just describe how someone might go about that in general, but thinking about specifically how someone might get the most out of the profession? Let me say right at the start, there is no correct answer to that question. Everybody goes on her or his own developmental trajectory in the professional world. And I'm, I'm hoping that there'll be some, some young colleagues with us today who'll come up with totally new ideas about how to have an interesting profession. I mean, I have to say this coronavirus pandemic has surprised me in terms of the impact that it's had on working with patients. Because, you know, back in, back in the good old days, If you wanted to see a patient, you gave them your address of your office and they would come to see you in your consulting room. But nowadays, I'm, I'm hearing stories of people in, you know, we have lots of colleagues in London who are getting requests from people in other countries far away saying, can I come into analysis with you via Zoom? Because we don't have any analysts in my country and I've read your work and, and so forth. So, you know, the, the whole world is becoming more of a virtual world now. So what, what psychoanalytical practice will look like in 10 years time, 
20 years time, it's anybody's guess. You know, it wouldn't so surprise me in a hundred years if, if we had Freudian and Jungian analysts working on foreign planets and, uh, you know, we have interplanetary psychoanalysis. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to be uh, challenged as well about what different creative uh, pathways can be, different options can be, but but certainly in in my own sort of pre-technological uh, lifetime, the, the the ways in which you know a small handful of people really did prove to be creative and impactful, and 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 here I can call upon our great hero uh, Donald Winnicott. You know, this was a man who conducted a very rich, very full clinical practice with babies and parents, children, adolescents, and adults. So he was very clinically uh, rich in that regard. He engaged in supervision, he taught, he wrote, he lectured, and so on and so on. But he also really became the pioneer, at least in the United Kingdom, of what I would now call media psychoanalysis. He was the first psychoanalytical voice to appear on the British Broadcasting Corporation. And from the late 1930s until his death in 1971, he made very regular appearances on radio and a few appearances on television in the 1960s, just as TV had, had started uh, to, to emerge. And I have to tell you something that when I did my biographical research on Winnicott's life, I I interviewed about 900 people who knew him personally, including many of my teachers. And, and one of my teachers said to me, you would not believe the anger that Winnicott provoked among people within the British Psychoanalytical Society in the 1940s and 50s by making psychoanalysis public. Many people thought that that was a really shocking thing to do with what is inherently such a private profession. But, but I think that part of that stems from envy, as, as we've uh, discussed before. But I think partly because many people find themselves quite inhibited in their own voices. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a, a very theatrical story. It really is a, a theater story. Uh, you, you, you mentioned my interest in theater. Many, many years ago, a playwright from the Royal Shakespeare Company uh, asked to come and see me, not, not for a clinical psychoanalytical consultation, but this was a gentleman who was writing a play and he wanted to write a play for the Royal Shakespeare Company about a patient undergoing therapy of some kind. And he, he wanted to have a little chat with me to learn more about the technical details. You know, does everybody have to lie on the couch? Can you sit in a chair? You know, this sort of thing. And I think he wanted to see the inside of my consulting room so he could begin to, uh, he could begin to conceptualize the process. So we had a very nice conversation. And at the end of it, he said, Brett, could you introduce me to some more of your colleagues? Because I really want to get a flavor of the, the psychological world. So I said to him, well, funnily enough, I'm, I'm giving a lecture tonight at the Tavistock Clinic in London. And if you'd like to come, there, there'll be a number of colleagues there. So I, I gave him a ticket and, and he came later that night to the, to the lecture. And he sat at the back. And although most of the colleagues who were there had about a hundred colleagues, they were listening to me. I was talking about some, some 
clinical theoretical material but i could tell that he was not really watching me he was watching the audience he wanted he wanted to get a sense of what what the psychological world looked like anyway he he sat there very quietly taking notes and at the end of the lecture he came up to me and i said oh good of you to come what did you think of 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 this evening and and he really really shocked me sebastian i have to tell you he said he said well thank you for your lecture a very interesting lecture but but i have to say looking at the audience i've never seen such an unattractive ugly group of people in my entire life and my my jaw really dropped because these were all colleagues and there you know yes none of them were film stars uh, brad pitt wasn't in the audience and uh, you know madonna wasn't in the audience that night but they were all perfectly ordinary pleasant looking well dressed people and it was very surprising for me to be told by an outsider from the world of theater that this community is very ugly looking yeah. and i think what he meant by that is people looked very very sort of depressed they spoke in very soft voices when they asked questions they didn't seem to be full of life and uh, that really that really struck me that really concerned me and i think there is something about our job which means that we sit all day in a chair which from my goodness from an aerobic uh, cardiovascular point of view is a is a terrible profession to be seated all day so we we do have to get up and and make our blood flow from time to time but 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 i i found that really shocking and i think there is something about although our minds are very active our minds never stop working when we're sitting in a chair there is something about just sitting in complete freudian silence for much of the session that i think as a profession has not made us as vocal as possible yeah. and has not allowed us to share our knowledge with the rest of the world as fully as possible so you know as a physician sebastian that most patients worldwide if they go to see their doctor and say i'm anxious i'm depressed the doctor will give them drugs they will prescribe antidepressants anti-anxiety agents talking therapy whether it's psychotherapy psychoanalysis whatever that's the second choice often and when they do prescribe talking therapies it's short term time limited cognitive behavioral therapy very few physicians recommend the slow creative conversation of psychoanalysis and i think part of the reason why we have become such a pharmacologically orientated planet in terms of dealing with psychological distress and mental illness is that the psychoanalytical community has not been vocal enough right right i think you raise a very important point in so far as um i'm i'm wondering if our psychic aliveness doesn't ha doesn't have a certain relation to the work we do every day and how we do that work because i'm i'm wondering if and this is a dialectic that you're interested in as well uh what is the relation between flourishing and survival mm -hmm. because the work can be so hard 
and can weigh you down so much um, that it might be really hard to be creative mm -hmm. after a long day at the office. Mm -hmm. And I think a very interesting aspect of the book, How to Flourish as a Psychotherapist, is your point about burnout and about how to prevent burnout. Because, you know, uh, people will tell you, you know, after a long day's work, you have to go to the movies, watch a nice movie, take a walk, um, enjoy family life, which are surely all good options. But you're actually making a different point. You're making the point that the more satisfying your work will be, the better you get at helping your patients, the easier it will be to prevent burnout. So it's kind of counterintuitive actually saying, you know, really put yourself in there, really be there for the patient, really be into the literature and you won't burn out. I mean, this is bound to raise, or to raise some questions and some resistances, but it's a very interesting point, I thought. Yeah. No, you've 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 identified that that point very well, and 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 you've you've uh, you've encapsulated it very well. I, I think that burnout is a very very vital subject. I, I meet a lot of young people, you know, in their early twenties, who think, "Oh, I want to become a psychologist. Uh, I want to become a counselor, whatever." And 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 I'm using all of these terms in a very interchangeable way uh, because I would like us one day to really integrate the mental health community. This is perhaps a topic for a separate conversation, but but I've always thought the fact that we have psychologists, psychiatrists, psychotherapists, psychoanalysts, counselors, you name it, it's a very splitting, splintering approach to a large potentially you know, global team of mental health workers, and we're all really trying to do the same thing. And, and, and we all invest a lot in our little local organizations and communities, and that doesn't help us speak with, with a global voice in quite the same way. But, but a, a lot of young people come to me and they say, oh, you know, it looks like such a noble profession, and, you know, you can really help people, and that's true. But when you start at seven o'clock in the morning, and you have a suicidal patient followed by a borderline patient at eight o'clock in the morning who's screaming at you, accusing you of being rubbish. And then at nine o'clock, you've got a neurotic patient who is telling you how they can't answer the, all their emails at work. And at 10 o'clock, someone cheating on their spouse. I mean, you know, you can, you can easily become exhausted by lunchtime, even if you've had a good night's sleep. So we do need to find creative arenas outside the consulting room where we can process all of this intrapsychic drama. I, I often say to, to people, I feel that every day in the consulting room, I watch eight or nine or 10 one act plays. I feel like I'm in the theater all day long, listening to one drama after another, after another. And it can be, it can be very enlivening and engaging but it can be exhausting. And I think that, that one of the really interesting paradoxes about aging and becoming more experienced is that when you get to be older and, and you've done this work for a long time, at one level, yes, 
it's a lot easier to do the work because you never run out of things to say, you never run out of questions to ask or interpretations to make. Uh, if somebody comes to you with, uh, with a history of, of drug addiction, you've probably already seen some drug addicted patients. So it's, it's not a complete shock or surprise in that way. So at one level, being older makes the work easier, but it also makes the work harder because when you are older and more experienced, the patient senses that. They sense your internal robustness and they convey even more of their most primitive parts to you. I think often with very young trainees, the patients don't always show us the most primitive psychotic parts of the mind. They don't reveal the most powerful and destructive sexual aspects of the mind, sexual fantasies, for example, masturbatory fantasies. But I think as you get older, the patient trusts your robustness to survive these confessions. So you're carrying much more clinical data in your head. And I think in a way, as you get older, you need to find these other outlets, whether it's writing, teaching, playing tennis. And I, I think another reason why I wrote How to Flourish as a Psychotherapist is that when I was a young practitioner, um, a, a book was published here in London by a woman whose, whose name may or may not be familiar to some of you. She was, she was really one of the most venerated and respected British psychoanalysts in the 1960s, 1970s, into the 1980s, Dr. Nina Coltart. And she wrote a book at the end of her life called how to survive as a psychotherapist. So I think in some ways, the notion of just surviving has an underlying quality of loss and yes. deprivation and depression. And although we're all going to die one day, I think that survival is, is a low bar and flourishing is a high bar. So I'm, I'm contextualizing my book in that context. I think I think we can always flourish more as human beings, but we're not always encouraged to do so, and we're not always authorized to do so. And, and I can't speak with confidence about the, the trainings today that so many of our younger colleagues are going on, and it may be that, that you know, the United Kingdom is its own special country and does things differently. It may be in your countries. Uh, the trainings are much more, much more encouraging and much more engaging. But when I was a young student, we were not even told that there was a life after the training ends. We were never taught to prepare for a life post-qualification. We were literally told, okay, treat your patients, come to supervision, read these papers by Freud and, and Klein and Winnicott, and nobody even had a sense that there would be a life post-qualification. So I would like to see trainings nowadays, whatever type of professional training it is, to integrate uh, you know, a developmental pathway so that people in their 20s, people in their 30s, can already start to learn about how to become better communicators. I don't think you should wait until you're 70, yes. until you're invited to the local institute to, to do a clinical seminar. I think 20-year-olds should be uh, encouraged to start lecturing. I, I was very lucky. I gave my first lecture on Freud at the ridiculously young age of 19. Uh, and that was only because my, my first year psychology student had to go away to a conference 
And he remembered that I was very geeky and had written a long paper in my first year about Freud, 60 pages long. And he said, Brett, uh, I've never done this before, but uh, I can't be here next Tuesday. Would you give the Freud lecture for me? And it was, it was the best offer I've ever had professionally because it really allowed me to start to speak in full sentences. And I, I don't think I would then have gone on to have done my work in radio and television at the BBC had it not been for the fact that I started giving lectures at a very young age. And it just made me, it made me feel more vocally comfortable. And I think because psychoanalysis is such a silent profession on the whole, such a quiet profession, even if you are very relationally orientated and you believe it's conversational, you know, mo in most sessions, the patient talks much more than the therapist does. So we do spend a lot of time shutting up our mouths. And I think if we're going to get our work, our research, our findings, you know, the, just to be able to convince people that psychotherapy is a worthwhile project that simply talking quietly and in a safe and confidential context is actually healing. We need to be, we need to be much quieter in the consulting room, but much more outspoken beyond the consulting room. Yeah, and I think the two might actually influence each other, right? If we find our voice outside of the consulting room and have a good outlet for our ideas, be it teaching, be it somewhere in the public space, I think it's actually much easier to shut up in the consulting room and really, really listen. Yes, absolutely. I, I often say nothing for, for, you know, 20, 30 minutes at a time in, in a session. I'm just listening, taking it in. And then when I do speak, I try to really find some underlying dynamic comment that will make some sense of what the patient might be struggling with. But yes, right. I'm, I'm very quietly spoken when I'm doing sessions. I'd really like to come back to the point of robustness. We, I think we have to talk about finding, finding your voice. But I think I would like to go first back to the base. Because I think this is a really important part of the book, and I think a part of the book that's actually raised many objections. We've seen this with um, advertising this event on social media, um, but you've also told me that some colleagues have talked about how high you set the bar. And I think when it comes to robustness and dependability, there's actually two parts to the conversation. I think there's one part where it's actually a conscious decision, right? It's a decision how available you want to be to the patient, how much you're there in the consulting room, how well rested you are when you go to bed the night before, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's important decisions you have to make. Uh, and, and also how you value dependability. Yeah. But then there's also the part of the mental health of the analyst. And I found that a very hard message to take on personally. You saying that we actually have to be very robust mentally because sometimes being in training, being in a training analysis and coming in touch with your own psychotic parts, with your own madness, with your insanity, I'm not sure if I can live up to the ideal you're suggesting. And I, I, I believe that many other people 
reading the book might have the same experience. Mm. Mm. I'm, I'm very, very interested to hear you say that and very interested and, and, and even surprised to hear that, that, that people entering the mental health profession or already in the mental health profession would, would question whether one could ever be too mentally healthy. I, I think it's a lifelong journey that we're all on. And, and, you know, because the work is so very, very demanding, we have to keep enhancing our mental health in every possible way. Um, so it may be that I sounded somewhat like a very punitive superego <laughs> when I said, make sure you get a good night's sleep. But, but we do need to have a good night's sleep in order to stay awake listening to these stories. You know, most people in this digital age don't really listen to one another at all very, very carefully. And um, we, we have a new phrase here in, in, uh, in the English speaking world. I don't know if this is known in other countries called fubbing. I don't know if anybody has, has come across that before, spelled P-H-U-B-B-I-N-G, fubbing. And it means to snub somebody with your mobile telephone, phone snubbing or fubbing. And, you know, it's, it's, it's rather like, you know, someone's talking to you and you're going, oh, yeah, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm listening, that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, that's become the, the, the mode of modern communication for so many people these days. And, of course, in our consulting rooms, uh, you know, we don't look at our phones in the middle of sessions we sit there and we listen with this intensity of concentration. So we need to have our minds as clear as, as, as possible, even if you know, difficult things are happening in our own lives, even if we're having to deal with ill uh, relatives or our own healthcare situation or uh, just being very distressed by, by the state of the world. So I, I think that we do need to have, as part of our training, a very intensive personal psychoanalysis with a really phenomenal training analyst. I think the choice of the training analyst or training therapist is, is really vital. I remember my own training analyst saying to me many, many years ago, he said, you must choose a training analyst whom you really like and respect and whom you would like to be like, because that process of ongoing identification is so powerful, you will become like your psychoanalyst in, in many, many ways. So you need, to, you need to make the choice very, very carefully and, and really do your homework to, to choose a good person and somebody who's going to, to promote you rather than pull you back and, and inhibit you. Um, I, I'm not saying there's a right roadmap of what the mentally healthy professional looks like. There are many different ways to be creative and, and mentally healthy and sturdy, but I do think we, we do need to set a very high bar. And although I'm not on social media in the way that, that you and, and people of younger generations are, I don't have a Facebook page or a, a, a Twitter account or anything like that, but what 
what I know from a number of the people who've written uh, reviews of my book or who've talked to me about it. You know, many have been very uh, generous and very complimentary, but other people have said, you know, Brett, you're you're setting the bar much too high by telling us we have to read the complete works of Freud. And I have to say that truly surprised me because I thought, well, if one is embarking on a training in the psychological sciences and you don't take the time to read the complete works of the person who founded this, that would be rather like a young medical student saying, oh, I don't need to learn anatomy. You know, it's to me, it's it's the bedrock of of, of the human mind. So uh, we listen. I, I I'm very happy for for us all to have different bars. Uh, what I want to do is to is to put out what I think is a model that describes the people in the field who I respect the most, from whom I have learned the most, and who I also think have been in many ways the most creative clinicians, the most successful clinicians, because if there's something internally deadly about the therapist, something a little depressive, something a little inhibited, your patients will unconsciously identify with that, and that may actually attack their creativity in later life. Yes, yes. I absolutely believe that. At the same time, I'm wondering what sort of a model of mental health we or you would like to promote. Because I'm thinking back to the story you told about the, the guy from the, the theater person coming, yeah. coming to your talk yeah. and looking at the crowd of psychotherapists who look just drab, just boring, just lifeless. And one could easily imagine that those are all perfectly mentally stable individuals right and this is actually a story you're telling in a different book i just want to let people know about uh, it's a book called what is normal it's an edited book and it's out on confer books and brad has a chapter in it um, and it's actually a really nice intention uh, extension of of how to flourish for me personally because It has parts in it, this chapter has, where you talk about the value of, or at least that's what I read, uh, the value of, dare I say, insanity or um, creative urges, being, being more than normal, you know, being, being, being more creative, more alive. And maybe that comes with a certain part of I'm not saying madness, but I, I, while I was reading the article or, or the chapter, I was thinking about another amazing chapter you wrote in a different book about Donald Winnicott and about hate in the countertransference, his amazing paper, like one of the best papers. Like anybody out there who's not read hate in the countertransference by Winnicott, do it. It's like it's a life changing paper. And you describing how he came to write the paper, how troubled he was himself, how many patients he, he had taken on that he couldn't deal with properly because he was overwhelmed, because he had taken them into his home. But what resulted out of this is this life-changing paper. 
Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if he had been just this very stable personality who'd only, you know, worked uh, very reliably day to day with patients in his practice, would he have been able to write such a creative paper? And I would doubt that. Mm -hmm. That's an exceptionally intelligent question. Really, really cunning question, Sebastian, and, uh, and, and a very provocative one. I, I think you're right. I, I think from, from my biographical investigations of, 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 of Donald Winnicott, and, and um, forgive me if I introduce him, <laughs> but, but he sits with me <laughs> on a regular basis. This is, this is dear Donald, um, a, a true genius. And, and, and after Freud, he's my, he's my number one uh, go-to person. And I do think that he was having a horrific time in his personal life, World War II, uh, a failing marriage, working with very, very traumatized psychotic patients at a time when most British psychiatric patients were subjected to, uh, to psychosurgical procedures where they had uh, what are sometimes called leucotomies or lobotomies. Uh, and, and he took many of these patients into his house to rescue them from the very cruel psychiatric facilities at the time. But, but it, it pushed him near to a breakdown and he had a massive uh, heart attack in, in 1949, just, uh, just after uh, having written this, the, the, the draft of this paper. So I do think that, that by talking about hatred in such a creative way, he was trying to process some of his own private struggles. I don't think he was mad. I think Winnicott always had a tremendous core of sanity. And he had, in the 1920s and 1930s, a 10-year psychoanalysis with Freud's disciple and translator James Strachey, followed by another five or six years with Melanie Klein's disciple, Joan Revere. Now, you know, nowadays it is possible to have a 16-year analysis but in the 1920s, nobody had a 16-year analysis. The average psychoanalysis lasted two or three years tops. Um, John Bowlby told me that he had about seven years of analysis, and he thought it was far, far too long. <laughs> but Winnicott stayed 16. And I think it was all of that slow, intensive work. And he went not from Monday to Friday, Monday to Saturday, because back then, a full analysis included sessions on a, on a Saturday, the, the day on which we're meeting now. Uh, but I think it gave him a chance to become really, really me very mentally healthy and robust. And he did find a creative way through his writing, through his communication, to process some of the very private mental pain and, and marital pain that he had to deal with. But I don't think that Insanity or trauma is a necessary prerequisite for creativity. I think there is something called a kind of purity of, of, of good health, which comes from good attachment structures or good psychoanalytical treatment later on, where you don't necessarily need to turn all your traumas into triumphs in that way. A healthy person is just naturally creative. And that comes from, I think, the recognition from mother staring at the baby or father staring at the baby with those benign, loving eyes 
that make the baby feel, I'm allowed to live. I'm allowed to have a place in the world. So I, I, think, I think the question of, of madness and creativity is, I mean, it's, it's a, uh, th that would be a great topic for a, perhaps for a free association panel at, at, at some point with lots of different speakers, because it's, it's, such, a, it's such a huge span of, of thoughts and ideas. But 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 I think that I think that there is something called a, a path of just a pure creativity and a mental robustness, which is not necessarily the same as normality. Normal, you know, Christopher Bolas has written so beautifully about this. Some of you will be familiar with 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 Bolas, an American-born gentleman who worked uh, here in the United Kingdom for many years. Uh, super writer and very intelligent uh, practitioner. And he talks about the normotic personality, people who are almost pathologically normal so much that it almost becomes a kind of madness in its own right. So what I'm really trying to champion in, in some of my writings, you, you use the word in your introduction, uh, this notion of being a maverick, being oneself. And that may very much be inspired by, again, our friend Winnicott, who's had a huge impact upon us all, this notion of the true self versus the false self. Can you, can you identify the voice that you want to articulate? And can you feel comfortable articulating it, even if not everybody agrees with you? You know, because if you do use your voice, you will be appreciated by some people, but you'll also be subjected to attacks or disagreements, or, or envious assaults, uh, or you'll shame somebody else uh, because uh, they want to have that kind of voice but don't have it or don't yet have it, or you might inspire somebody else. So, so using your voice will have inevitably a whole stream of consequences. Thanks for that. I think it, this really puts some of the points in perspective and um, let, me, let me just ask a kind of a two-part question, I'd say. One is, I read this book also as a meditation on, on limits, to be honest, mm -hmm. because I think, mm -hmm. you know, you talk a lot about, you know, going outside of the consulting room, finding your voice, but at the same time, you're actually talking about um, what is possible with a certain base. So, you know, you talk about money, which <laughs> not a lot of people do. You need, a, you need money to get into the profession. You need money to train. You talk about health, mental health and physical health, things that limit us in that respect. You talk about age, you talk about dying. Those are not very popular topics. So I, I, see, a, I see a lot of, a lot of meditation on limits actually in the book and and that's the second part of the question i felt your voice in the book has a paternal quality in the sense that the father is someone who introduces also introduces limits so here's this experienced analyst this father figure telling the public you know, there's amazing things you can do in our profession. I think you start off in the first chapter, over the last 40 years, I've saved many lives, which is 
a very factual statement, right? But it's also a statement that tells us we can do really amazing things in the profession if we apply ourselves and if we're dependable, if we do hard work. And I found the reaction to, to that part of the book extremely interesting because I think there's sometimes a confusion at this point in time in the culture of the phallic grandiose father who's talking about, you know, you can do whatever you want. Look at me. I'm, I'm just, I'm really great. And actually a measured paternal voice talking about, you know, you can do amazing things, but there's also these limits and you have to apply yourself. But the culture doesn't seem to, to differentiate between the two sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I've like, you know, I feel like every voice that's somewhat paternal, somewhat a father figure gets attacked relentlessly at this point in time. And that is something that I, that I really started to think about and, and, and kind of worried me also actually when promoting our event today on social media. Mm. Maybe you have some thoughts on that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'd, I'd, I'd love to hear other people's thoughts too. Obviously, I am a person of a, of a certain age. So undoubtedly, being of a certain age, uh, one will evoke a, a particular transference, possibly a parental transference. Although it, I, I must tell you, it doesn't always, it's not always linked concretely to one's physical age. Uh, I, I'll tell you a very funny, but also a very frightening story, uh, which is something that may happen to, to, to some of you in, 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 as young practitioners or, uh, or future practitioners. I remember when I was a very, very young student at, at, the, at the Tavistock Clinic here in London and doing my uh, training in couple work, working with couples. Uh, I, I was very young. I had a, a full head of hair at the time and, and all of that. And uh, this, this couple came into the consulting room to, to meet me for the first time. And the, the female member of the couple said to me, oh, my God you look exactly like my grandfather. <laughs> I thought, oh my goodness, do I really look that, that elderly when I'm only, I don't know, 28 years old or something ridiculously young like that? So, you know, you can, you can, be, at, you can be at any age, whereas Donald Winnicott, when he was in his 70s, people thought he, he uh, carried himself rather like a child because he was very whimsical. So, so age has a concrete reality, as you know, but, but it also has a, a, a transferential uh, underpinning and, and a projective underpinning and, and, and so forth. Yes, I mean, I'm sure I'm speaking with, with a parental voice. I've been a teacher, you know, for, for, for decades now. I've, I've, I've been teaching and sharing my knowledge. Hopefully, I, I try to do it in a benign way rather than a, a grandiose way, and I try to encourage my students to find out, well, what is it that, that interests them? I offer them opportunities, but I do know at this stage of my life that no two students have the same appetite for a professional life, and no two of them go down exactly the same path. And I think that is one of the really exciting features about this profession, because you know, there are some professions where everybody does exactly the same job. You know, if you're, I, I don't know, uh, maybe this is not the right uh, example, but if you're a chartered accountant and you have to file people's taxes, 
everybody's taxes must be filed in the same meticulous way, whether there's room for creativity or not. I, 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 I don't know. I've, I've never been an accountant. But we have tremendous potential in the psychological world because we can focus on clinical work, teaching, writing. Within clinical work, we can focus on working with children or working with families or hospital work, uh, it, one of your specialities. You know, so there are so many possibilities. And, and no two people, I, I, I think we need to think of the profession rather like a swimming pool. You know, no two people get into a swimming pool in quite the same way. Some, some people are not very good swimmers or they're frightened of getting wet or frightened of drowning. So they just put their toe very delicately in the water and then they take it out. And then, you know, other people, you know, a robust little 10-year-old boy or girl will jump on the diving board, you know, plunge himself or herself into the water and have, have a great time. So uh, I think if we think of the profession rather like a swimming pool, not not an analogy I, I put in the book, but but perhaps one that's that's relevant. It's it's literally just come to my mind in in free association fashion, perhaps inspired by the name of this new organisation. Uh, I, I think you know there's no correct way to swim in a swimming pool, but but if you if you really do practice your swimming, it can become a source of great magnificence for you. And and one of my great teachers, who's now in her nineties. She swims every single day, actual swimming in a, in a real swimming pool. I wish I had time to do that. But, but she says she's convinced that really keeping her swimming, her actual swimming going, has been such a source of life enhancement and, and creativity. Hmm. Really interesting. You've, I think one of the chapters in the book, and this is probably going to be the last question that I direct at you, and, and after that we'll open the floor, I think one of the chapters that jumped out most at me is that is a chapter about uh, inhibition, about inhibitionism. Mm -hmm. um, because I think that's that's something we don't think enough about. We we talk about exhibitionism a lot. We talk about perversions, and we, we probably encounter that a lot. But what about neurotic inhibitionism? Yeah. And I mean. We've heard many examples today how we in our profession have a huge issue with that. And some of that might, might actually be, you know, just um, habitus, like just, you know, we're so used to being listeners that we don't get to own our voice fully. But, but there might be, I'm, I'm not sure, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm, I'm grasping the problem in total. It, 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 It's such a complex problem, and I think it's really damaging, not just to us, but also to the world in general. I mean, we have, we have such a, a specialized knowledge that we should bring to the public. Mm. And why don't we? Like, what, what is it? I mean, there, there's obviously like a technical problem with the abstinence or with, with, um, with neutrality that's often put forward. You know, people talking about I could never say anything in public because that would damage my practice. But I don't know. It seems seems kind of like something you, you know, put put forward to, to just not have to deal with the issue. 
Oh, Sebastian, you're such a wonderful conversationalist. I, I wish we could <laughs> do this very, very regularly. Um, these are great, great questions. And I, I, I love the way you focus on these really vital points with, with real analytic depth. Thank you. Um, yes, I think that I think you're absolutely right. We, we have a lot of literature in psychoanalysis on what is called exhibitionism. And you know, exhibitionism can, can take place at the perverse forensic level where people are actually displaying their genitals in public, uh, committing sexual crimes. Uh, but one can be a characterological exhibitionist, in other words, a pathological narcissist and say it's, you know, me, 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 me. And we're hearing a lot about that in the world news with some of uh, the planet's political leaders at, at the moment. So we, we have a lot of data on exhibitionism, but, but very, very little. We've, we talk very little about inhibitionism. And funnily enough, I wrote a book uh, literally 20 years ago on clinical exhibitionism because I was, I was working with, with forensic patients at the Tavistock at that time. These, are, these were men who literally just, you know, took off their clothes and uh, traumatized people in in local parks and on the streets and and so forth they were they were convicted sexual offenders and i said that you know the the antithesis of exhibitionism is inhibitionism and i think it does apply to the mental health profession and i think there are a number of reasons for it i think sitting in a chair all day does does make us inward i think we have to be exceptionally thoughtful about anything that we do outside of the consulting room. Um, although I do do a lot of work with the media, I would say that I turn down most of the invitations that I receive, for example. Oh, okay. Because you have to think very carefully about what impact will this have on my patients? What impact will it have on the media? And, and when I do go on the media, I never talk about, about myself or my background. It's of, it's of little interest to anybody. I talk about, you know, does, does psychotherapy work? You know, the, that's the question I get asked, you know, how do you find a psychotherapist? What causes depression? You know, uh, can schizophrenia be treated without drugs? These kinds of questions. And I don't think those are exhibitionistic questions, but I think they are questions about conquering our professional inhibitionism so that we share our knowledge. I think there's an historical context to this, if I can put on my, my ancient historian's hat. Because, you know, if we look at, at, at our other great friend, who's, who's also here with me, um, Sigmund Freud, I, I've got to tell you, these, these were two, two sculpture busts that were both, both made, uh, Freud and Winnicott, both made by the great uh, sculptor called Oscar Nemon. And I had the privilege to meet his daughter, who, who very kindly gifted oh, me wow. with these statues. And, and these two guys are with me all day long in my consulting room. So, you know, I feel like I, I, they're always there as my teachers. You know, I never, I never stop learning from them. And Freud and Winnicott, I'm, I'm writing a paper about this at the moment. Freud and Winnicott had very different relationships to the outside world, to the media. Winnicott did work for the BBC. Freud hated to talk to the press. And although he was not shy, as you know, he challenged the world. He challenged 19th century European psychiatry by saying, hey folks, let's not lock the lunatics up in institutions. 
let's allow them to rest on a couch. We won't touch their bodies. We won't drug them. We won't beat them, which is what happened in the 19th century. We'll simply let them talk and, and tell us what's on their mind. So he did something very bold and outreachy, but he was lambasted by the Viennese press, as, as you know very well. I mean, people called him a pervert. They called him a lunatic. But just the sheer Freud bashing that occurred when he began to publish his psychological findings made him very, very emboldened in one level to carry on and found an international psychoanalytical community, but also I think created a traumatic inhibitionism that did have a big impact on the psychoanalytical community. And I think we mustn't forget that the vast majority of the founders of psychoanalysis were of Jewish origin and lived in countries called yeah. Germany and Austria. And as you know, in the 1930s, the entire global psychoanalytical community was exploded by, by the Nazis. I often say that the people who had the two largest impacts on the development of psychoanalysis were Sigmund Freud and Adolf Hitler, because Hitler terrified, I mean, he murdered many psychoanalysts. There were many psychoanalysts, including Freud's four sisters, as you know, who were sent to uh, concentration camps and, and executed. But I think that when a lot of the Jewish refugees from Germany and Austria then fled to the United Kingdom and particularly to the United States of America, they became far too frightened to speak out. I think they were carrying this idea that if we make ourselves too public, if we make ourselves too well known, the Nazis will find us. And when you study the climate within the New York Psychoanalytic Society in the 1940s, or the British Psychoanalytical Society in the 1940s, these were very, very elite, contained, inward-looking organizations. They did very little collaboration with the media. Karen Horney was absolutely ripped to shreds by her colleagues in New York when she became a best-selling author and signed a contract with W.W. Norton and Company because she was the first member of the New York Psychoanalytic Society to write best-selling books. And they hated her for doing that, you know? So I think there's something about the, the history of the profession and the Nazi persecution, which may still have an intergenerational impact. That's, that's my historian's hypothesis. I, I may... I may not be correct about that, but I have, I have a strong sense that many of my generation of teachers who were taught by the post-refugee generation, I think they were actually very, very inhibited by that. And I think that did have an impact on how psychoanalytical ideas got taught in the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s. And this concludes the interview part of the event. I really enjoyed the conversation with Brett. I must admit I was a little skeptical about some parts of the book, especially Brett's high standards with regards to the analyst's sanity and dependability. But talking to him about my doubts and reservations and having him respond with such kindness and generosity gave my encounter with him and his work much added depth. 
I'm very grateful for this second opportunity to discuss his work with him. Please do check out our conversation about his book, Bombs in the Consulting Room, Surviving Psychological Shrapnel, also out on new books in psychoanalysis. And I want to express my heartfelt gratitude to the Free Association for facilitating the event. Check out their website. It would be great if you decided to join us for future events. In September, I will interview Carlos Padron on Zoom. Digital seats are going fast, so please consider signing up soon if you're interested in taking part in this conversation. Thank you very much for listening. Till then, take care. Bye-bye.